In the 19th century, the Elysium Fields in New Jersey lay just a short boat trip away for New Yorkers looking to spread their legs, take in some rural countryside air, or relax on the lawn of a riverside refreshment house with a glass of lemonade. Mostly famous for being the birthplace of modern baseball, the fields have another, somewhat less well-known story connected to their dense thickets and green walkways. Far from the straightforward drubbing of that first game of baseball, this story is, of course, far darker, full of more twists and turns, and has no winners. Hailed as one of the greatest criminal mysteries of 19th century New York, the case of Mary Rogers is at once perfectly well solved and at the same time completely wide open. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 8. I'm Ben, the host as always. I hope this episode finds you well. It's good to be back. Before we start, I want to just um, check out a couple of little kind of things uh, that are worth talking about. Um, Firstly, Dark Histories is going to be five years old in about a month and a half, which is madness. Um, And sort of to celebrate, um, I've got a kind of couple of things that I'm brewing up. And one of them will be a, a live stream, um, which I'm, I'm be looking to do on YouTube, um, which I haven't done for uh, quite a while. So um, I think that'd be nice. And, and as part of the live stream, I would like to include um, some sort of like ask me anything kind of uh, section. Um, so now's your chance. If you ever had anything you wanted to ask um, or you wanted any answers about any of the episodes that I've done in the past or any of the production of, of the episodes or just just anything you want to ask me literally ask me anything um now's your chance so um yeah i think until probably get give you sort of like a good three or four weeks to get your questions in but as soon as possible would be great um if you could email them to me at contact at darkhistories.com or you can um go on social media instagram i'm there um and dm me the question and, and i'll just put them all into one document and then I, I can go through them all um in the live stream and i think that'd be kind of fun so that's kind of one thing um and on that related note um as part of the fifth anniversary the fifth dark histories book will be coming out uh i finally got the proof copy uh this week which is very exciting um and of course there's some obvious errors <laughs> that i need to fix um so um but yeah that, that that will be ready for for the fifth anniversary as well which is really cool so yeah the there's a couple of interesting things. Uh, just sort of chuck them out before we start. But now they're chucked out, let's get started. This is The Mystery of Mary Cecilia Rogers. By the mid-19th century, New York had boomed as the United States' most important port, hosting a population of over half a million people and showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon. As overcrowding consumed the city, people sought escape in the rural outskirts. One of the more popular areas of natural beauty lay only a short trip away from the concrete smoke and putrid stench of the port. Known as the Elysium Fields, the parkland stood on the banks of Hoboken on the New Jersey side of the mile-wide Hudson River. The crossings were facilitated by the steamships that connected New York with New Jersey from the tourist piers that jutted out into the water nestled amongst the countless commercial piers and slaughterhouses that lined the river. Colonel John Stevens had bought up and developed the land as a waterside walkway 
importing fruit trees and exotic flowers, and landscaping the whole area with a particular eye for natural beauty. Stepping off the ferry service, a national first for Stevens who had invested heavily in travel infrastructure, the brisk sea air was thought to bring a relaxing calm to the overheated city dwellers who could saunter up the finely planted gardens of the Colonnade Hotel, a large white building described as fashionable and elegant, and order their drinks to be taken on the lawn. Parallel to the river, day-drippers could walk north past the New York Yacht Club's headquarters and clusters of taverns, taking in an assortment of public entertainment, from bare-knuckle fighting to bear-baiting, or head up to the nearby Sewell Cave, a 30-foot-deep man-made hole in the cliff wall that housed a spring whose water was advertised as having miraculous health-giving properties and was sold for a cent a glass. Strolling past Union Hill led to a Romany gypsy camp where the more adventurous could have their palms read and their fortunes told. With a scene of such healthy tourism, P.T. Barnum couldn't help but get involved, and the New York entertainer staged a grand buffalo hunt in the fields during the summer of 1843. The typical farcical event saw 24,000 New Yorkers cross the Hudson to see a pack of dressed-up cowboys lasso a herd of buffalo. The ragtag band of malnourished animals that Barnum had purchased for the event turned out to be such a disappointment that the crowd soon began to mock the cowboys. But the hooting and hollering stirred a second wind in the animals who broke through the flimsy fencing and galloped out into the surrounding marshlands. Her Barnum, the calamitous day out, was a resounding success. He had negotiated a 50% share in ticket sales with the ferry operator, bagging himself over $3,000 in profit. The same fields were the site of several ball games, whose teams needed an open area away from the multiplying glass windows of New York City. And in 1845, what many consider to be the first organised baseball game, or at least the first recorded game, took place between the Knickerbockers and the New York Nines. Not much of a nail-biter, the Nines smashed the Knickerbockers 23-1 in four innings. On other days, games of cricket were held on the same greens, proving that at one point, Americans did actually have a taste for proper sport. In contrast to its serene atmosphere in the long summer days, night times and off-seasons saw a different side of the Elysium fields. Close to New York, yet relatively rural and isolated, and filled with taverns lining the waterfront, it also became the scene of many violent crimes gang scuffles and drunken bar brawls. In 1851, gang violence broke out during an organised celebration of the Pentecost by more than 10,000 local immigrants who made up a thriving German community in New York when the short boys proceeded to disrupt the festivities. What began as a few scuffles between the short boys and the German musical and gymnast societies split over into a full-scale riot. The cricket pitch, which had been rented by the Germans, turned into a battlefield that eventually required the intervention of the Jersey City military to break up the ongoing carnage. For similar reasons, along with the romanticised poetry of the landscape, the fields became a popular suicide spot for the lost souls of the city, becoming common enough for the press to write that the fields would have had a spectacular record for a morgue, with some estimates suggesting that it was the scene of a suicide at least once a month. Perhaps it was for that reason that the people out walking on Wednesday the 28th of July were more curious than shocked when the body of a young woman was hauled out of the water and tied to a rock to await the officials. The summer of 1841 had seen temperatures soar and the intensity of the city closed in around the occupants. The body signalled the beginning of a news item that would consume the gossip pieces of the New York press as scandal, mystery and outrage 
would burst out into the busy streets and draw people to the Elysian fields for a far darker form of tourism than it had previously been known for. Born in Lyme, Connecticut in 1820, Mary Cecilia Rogers was the sixth child of her mother, Phoebe Rogers, and the first child of her father, Daniel Rogers. Phoebe Rogers had remarried after the death of her first husband, a wealthy merchant and property owner named Ezra Mather, whom she had had her first four sons and first daughter with. The years prior to Mary's birth had been something of a rough ride for Phoebe, and her husband's untimely death was something of a following trend, as only two of their five children had survived childhood. Phoebe remarried in 1814 to Daniel Rogers, who was 11 years her junior, and for the first six years of their marriage, the couple appeared to have chosen not to have children. And then, in 1820, along came Mary. In fact, Mary's birth parents are a matter of some dispute, given that no records exist of the event, leading some to theorise that she was the illegitimate child of her unmarried sister, adopted by Phoebe and Daniel, in order to save face in a deeply religious and socially conservative community. Whoever the real parents were, Phoebe and Daniel Rogers raised Mary as their own. After the birth of Mary, Phoebe may have relaxed into what she thought was a new beginning and a stable future. However, all of that came crashing down in 1834 after Daniel was killed in a freak steamship explosion, leaving Phoebe twice widowed. Seeking to escape the long run of poor luck, in 1837 she took Mary to New York where members of her extended family already lived. For a short time, they boarded with a man named John Anderson before moving in with Phoebe's sister on Pitt Street in an area of the Lower East Side casually known as Little Germany, home as it was to many of the German immigrants who were settling in the ever-expanding city. Mary, now 18 years of age, was approached by John Anderson, who, after having started out as a labourer and a bricklayer, had turned his hand to importing and selling tobacco in a small emporium on Lower Broadway. A man with a certain flair for business, Anderson had already seen his business rocketing and in Mary's fantastic good looks, he saw an opportunity to capitalise. Placing this prized jewel behind the counter, he hoped to reel in some truly large and hopefully well-bred fish. The back room of the store hosted a parlour that saw the business of newspaper editors, judges, poets and writers and Anderson needed the continued business of every last one. Deep down, tobacco was a stepping stone to bigger things and Anderson had grand political ambitions. After promising Phoebe that he would escort Mary home every night after her shift and coughing up the offer of a very good wage, Mary accepted the position, working at the counter, and within months found herself transformed into a minor celebrity as Anderson's shop blew up to dominate the New York tobacco trade. His choice of decor, location, and a fine stock of chewing and fine-cut tobacco no doubt played a part in the success but people spoke openly about the heavy lifting done by his attractive assistant Mary, or the beautiful cigar girl, as she became known in the New York papers, who incredibly actually found column space to write stories about her. Like some sort of peculiar tobacco shilling Victorian it girl, Mary managed to find herself famous simply for being herself. One reader of the New York Herald sent the paper a poem dedicated to her, commending her on her star-like eyes. This was all working out quite well for Anderson, until one evening in October, when Mary mysteriously vanished. Though she did return to work within a day, her sudden disappearance was enough to stir the newspapers to print their concerns for the pure young maiden, and before long her absence had a full-blown narrative. Mary, they said, had been 
disappointed in a matrimonial engagement and had chosen to take her own life, leaving a farewell letter to her mother. When she returned behind the counter at Anderson's, alive and well, explaining that she'd simply been to visit a friend in Brooklyn, the papers claimed it had all been a hoax, perpetrated in some stories by a rogue, and in others by Anderson himself, in further efforts to drum up attention for his tobacco store. Whilst it seems unlikely that it was Anderson who spread the initial rumours, he did appear to capitalise, as hordes of new customers flocked to the store in order to catch a glimpse of Mary, the beautiful cigar girl. It was certainly true that Anderson had a flair for business, but he could hardly take credit for being the first to have considered the benefit of having female staff in a store where the clientele was largely male. It was a tactic employed across the city. Naturally, the practice inspired outrage from the more conservative contingent who rallied against a woman for working in stores where the clientele was not exclusively other women. As one writer put it, the stores were displaying the girls like a brilliant luminary in order to capture rich rascals and called for an end to the practice, which he called a great evil. Regardless, this vocal minority were not the ones shopping in Anderson's store, so he was free to ignore the criticism whilst watching his profits roll higher and higher, though Mary did eventually demand a higher wage, a request that Anderson could hardly afford to deny. Shortly after her disappearance and reappearance, Mary's stepbrother, who worked aboard a ship out of New York and come into some money from a rather vague foreign business venture, funded the lease of a boarding house on Nassau Street, a block from Broadway where his mother and Mary could live and work. Mary stepped out of public view and into the slightly more down-to-earth role of helping her mother with the chores for their new tenants. For Mary's mother, she was just glad to have Mary out of the limelight of the tobacco store, though Anderson had done everything that he could, including desperate pleading, to keep her on board. Even if Mary had wanted to remain at the store, it would have been next to impossible, as her mother's health began a downward turn, placing many of the day-to-day tasks on Mary's shoulders. The situation was not helped by the news that her stepbrother, after funding the initial investment to secure the lease, was killed only months later when a mask knocked him from his ship and out into the sea. Her stepbrother's death capped off several decades of loss for Mary, whose life finally seemed to settle into a welcome monotony. As the landlady of a busy boarding house, routinely housing between four and five tenants, Mary had plenty of work to do. Every morning she spent around three hours taking care of the chores around the house, and then once again in the evening, after preparing meals, she would once more clear the house, readying it for a quiet night, only to wake up the next day and repeat the cycle again and again. And so, time passed with a slow, uneventful certainty until the summer of 1841. Just like the magnetism she had at the tobacco store, her three years as the landlady were no less filled with admirers. Amongst the tenants, she found several suitors vying for her attention. Alfred Cromlin, a law clerk, had moved into the building in December of 1840 and found himself captivated with Mary from the outset. Unfortunately for him, Mary had already become fairly deeply involved with another tenant named Daniel Payne. In contrast to Cromlin's straight-laced appearance, Daniel Payne was a little rougher around the edges. Though he worked in the skilled, highly demanded craft as a cork cutter, if rumours were to be believed, he spent a considerable amount of time removing corks rather than making them and his reputation as a heavy drinker was well known. Mary seemed to take to him, however, and the pair were in a fairly advanced courtship that forced Cromlin to accept that he'd been overlooked. He didn't do so with any deal of grace, however, 
and he lost his cool quite splendidly just five months after he'd moved in when he returned home from work one day to walk in on Mary and Daniel throwing down on the kitchen table. In a fit of rage, he stomped up to his room, packed his bags and left the boarding house for good. But not before he opined on the corruption of sin and pompously reassured Mary that he still cared for her and would be available any time should she ever need his help. As it happened, just over a month later, Mary put his promise to the test after she had an argument with her mother concerning her relationship with Daniel Payne. Apparently, Mrs. Rogers didn't much approve of her daughter's choice in men, and after a heated argument, she made Mary promise to leave Payne. Shortly after, Cromlin received a letter inviting him to the boarding house that had been signed Phoebe Rogers, but curiously was written in Mary's hand. Mary also left a message on a chalkboard outside his front door, asking for his assistance at the house, and perhaps as a bit of a softener, she left a rose in the keyhole. Not thrilled to spend more time in the presence of pain and seemingly a tad bitter after the fallout, Cromlin decided not to bother visiting. It was a decision that, in retrospect, he would perhaps live to regret. Two days later, on the morning of Sunday the 25th of July, Mary woke as usual and got to fix in the morning chores. When she was finished, she called through the door to Daniel Payne's room and told him that she was intending to head out to visit her aunt, who lived just 15 minutes north of the Nassau Street boarding house on Jane Street. The city omnibus, a rickety 12-seater horse-drawn cart, ran up and down Broadway, linking the boarding house to Mary's aunt's, so Payne arranged to meet Mary later that evening at the station on Broadway, just round the corner from the house. At 5pm, when he arrived at the stop, however, it dawned on him that the plan didn't entirely make sense. The omnibus didn't even run on Sundays, a fact that had somehow eluded him until he arrived at the desolate station. Making matters worse, a storm that had been threatening throughout the hot, stuffy summer's day erupted overhead, sending a torrent of rain down upon the street. Realising that wherever Mary was, she would not be travelling in the rain, he ducked into Bickford's, the local tavern, and passed the time with a drink until the rain eased. At 9pm, he made his way back to the boarding house, bumping into Mary's second aunt along the way. She also agreed that Mary would be unlikely to be travelling in the rain and suggested it was likely that she had decided to stay with her aunt rather than travel in the poor weather and would most likely stay overnight. Without any particular concerns, Daniel Payne turned in for the night, expecting to see Mary in the morning. The following morning, however, Mary had not returned. and When Daniel woke up and went down to the kitchen, he was greeted by Mary's mother, anxiously fretting at the table. After briefly stopping to reassure her that Mary would show up soon enough, he stepped out to go to work for the day. When he returned to the house at lunchtime, however, and Mary had still not returned, Mary's mother's stress was approaching a critical level. He was still sure that Mary would have been staying at her aunt's, but he agreed to mount a search in order to calm Mrs Rogers and began by touring the local bars and taverns. Having no luck, it finally dawned on him to take the omnibus up to Mary's aunt's and see if she was still there. When he arrived, he was greeted by a surprised-looking figure. Mary's aunt confirmed with pain that Mary had never even arrived at their house on Sunday. In fact, she'd not made any plans with them, and they'd not expected her at all, so they'd been out for most of the day. It was about this point that Daniel Payne started to feel genuine concern himself. Hitting the streets once more, he walked halfway across New York, even crossing over the Hudson to her friends in Hoboken, calling in with any acquaintance he could think of to see if any of them had seen or heard from Mary. Having no luck at all, he stopped into the offices of the Sun newspaper and placed a missing persons advert 
though he refrained from using her name directly, keen to avoid another public excitement like the first time that she'd gone missing, back when she had worked at the tobacco store. Left home on Sunday morning, July 25, a young lady had on a white dress, black shawl, blue scarf, leghorn hat, light-coloured shoes and parasol, light-coloured. It is supposed some accident has befallen her. Whoever will give information respecting her at 126 Nassau shall be rewarded for their trouble. Satisfied that he had done all that he could for the day, he returned to the boarding house for an uneasy night, waiting for news of the missing Mary Rogers. The sun would not keep him waiting too long, but the news would not be what he wanted to hear. The morning of Wednesday the 28th of July was another warm day in what was shaping up to be a particularly hot summer. The sun had risen over the city, bringing with it temperatures of over 90 degrees. That morning, Cromlin and Payne had been out looking for Mary once more, and Cromlin had left a message for the constable concerning a missing persons report at the, at the Bowery police station. He picked up his friend, Archibald Padley, who had also been living in the Nassau Street boarding house at the same time as Cromlin, and the pair set out on the trail of Mary, jumping on a ferry over to the Elysium Fields in Hoboken. Around 3pm, Henry Malin, James Bullard and H.G. Luther were out walking along the fields up by Sybil's cave when they saw what looked distinctly like a person floating out in the river about 200 yards from the shore. Excitedly, they grabbed a small rowboat and kicked out into the water. Drawing up alongside the bundle of rags that waved on the surface of the water, they all at once came to the same realisation, that it was the body of a woman floating on her back, her arms folded upon her chest. Not especially keen to touch the macabre find, they tied a rope to it and towed it back to the shore, tying it down to a rock and ran off to find help. By the time they'd reached the shore, however, a small crowd of walkers had gathered to see what was going on. The news of a body in the water spreads fast, even in the sparsely populated Elysium fields. By a remarkable chance, a reporter from the Herald was in the crowd and he wasted no time in soaking up all the gory details, thrilled at stumbling upon such a great story for the next day's paper. Her forehead and face appeared to be battered and butchered to a mummy, he wrote. Her features were barely recognisable, such was the violence that had been done to her. Just as the Herald reporter was taking his grisly notes, Cromlin and Padley stepped into the crowds. They'd heard rumours of a body turning up at the shore by the cave and fearing the worst, they'd walked at pace to see what was occurring. As Cromlin stepped out into the clearing around the body, he was quickly able to confirm his worst fears. That it was that of Mary Rogers. Fully clothed in her hat, gloves and long summer dress, she lay on the shore of the river, discoloured and bloated. Shortly after Cromlin and Padley arrived, the New Jersey coroner, Dr Richard Cook, appeared on the scene and from the outset made it known that he had fairly strong concern for the state of the body lying open under the heat of the beating summer sun. It took almost three hours for the New Jersey judge, Gilbert Merritt, to arrive, and when he did, Dr Cook had Mary's body removed to a nearby building as soon as he could in order to carry out his autopsy. Working quickly, he noted the blood and the bruising around the mouth, which pretty much instantly put paid to his initial theory that the victim had drowned in the river. He further noticed that the veins in the face were distended and that there were marks on the throat that correlated with a thumbprint showing clear signs of strangulation. As he inspected the back of the head, he noticed a small knot which turned out to be from a strip of lace that had been torn from her underskirt and tied tightly around her neck. From this inspection, he concluded that the cause of death had been strangulation after suffering a violent attack 
from at least three individuals. He also believed, due to the unkempt nature of her clothes, that she had been stripped and then redressed before being dumped in the river. One specific note he made was that the knot that tied her hat beneath her chin was not the kind that a woman would tie, instead suggesting that the actors were likely to have been sailors. Once the autopsy was complete, an inquest was held the same evening with the obvious conclusion that the death had been caused by persons unknown. Once the formalities had been completed, Mary's body was buried in a shallow grave in order to facilitate an exhumation should the investigation call for a further inspection. The following day, the Sun was quick to print the story. Despite the ID not being made official, they jumped to the conclusion, both of the identification and the underlying cause behind the body in the river. The body of a young lady, some 18 or 20 years of age, was found in the water at Hoboken. From the description of her dress, fears are entertained that it is the body of Miss Mary C. Rogers, who is advertised in yesterday's paper as having disappeared from her home, 126 Nassau Street, on Sunday last. There can be no question that she had fallen a victim to the most imprudent and reprehensible practice which has recently obtained to a considerable extent in this city, of placing behind the counters and at the windows of stores for the sale of articles purchased exclusively by males, especially of cigar stores and drinking houses, young and beautiful females for the purpose of thus attracting the attention, exciting the interest and thus inducing the visits and consequent custom of the other sex especially of the young and thoughtless. It was by being placed in such a situation, in one of the most public spots in the city, that this unfortunate girl was led into a train of acquaintances and associations which has eventually proved not only her ruin, but an untimely and violent death in the prime of youth and beauty. From being used as an instrument of cupidity, as a sort of man-trap to lure by her charms the gay and giddy into the path of the spendthrift and of constant dissipation, she has become the victim of the very passions and vices which her exposure to the public gaze for mercenary gain was so well calculated to engender and encourage. That night, Mr Luther, one of the witnesses who had first discovered Mary's body, visited the boarding house on Nassau Street and broke the news to Phoebe Rogers and Daniel Payne. Curiously, he later said of the meeting that neither of them seemed much distressed by the news, and though it could well have been the shock of finding out about Mary's death, he said that he distinctly felt that the news was not unexpected. The police investigation into the death of Mary Rogers was not particularly quick out the gate. Daniel Payne was an obvious early suspect, and though some of his testimony of the final conversation that he'd had with Mary had some irregularities, for instance, why he had not realised that the omnibus was not running on Sundays, or why he'd not been more concerned that she was missing, his alibi was quickly confirmed, given that he spent most of the Sunday of Mary's disappearance either in public, drinking and reading the papers in a bar or tavern, or with family and friends, all of which were easily and quickly confirmed. The press were not so easily pleased with the evidence, and in the early days railed against Daniel Payne, suggesting that he'd been lying about Mary going to her aunt's at all, and that his alibi included a three-hour nap in his room on Nassau Street. They also had latched on to the rumours circulating that Mary had argued with her mother in the days prior to her disappearance about her relationship with Daniel. If her mother had demanded she call it off, had he taken the news poorly and killed her in a crime of passion? Meanwhile, the police were busy arguing amongst themselves over whose jurisdiction the case belonged to. In truth, neither New Jersey nor New York wanted the responsibility of investigating the case, nor of funding a reward for information. Eventually, it was confirmed that the New York police should take up the reins, 
and the body was exhumed in order for the New York coroner to perform a second autopsy. Despite the advanced stage of putrefaction that had occurred in the warm weather, Daniel Payne and Mrs. Rogers were called to the Bowery station in order to carry out an identification, though Mrs. Rogers did not see the body directly, the police deciding to spare her the disturbing scene, instead allowing her to give a positive identification from scraps of her clothing. Undertaken by the New York coroner, Dr. Archer, one of the stranger aspects to come from the second autopsy was when he changed the cause of death from strangulation to drowning. However, the police were not entirely convinced as they were focusing in on the knot that the New Jersey coroner had previously commented on and the fact that he thought that it may have been tied by a sailing man. In early August, they arrested a man named William Keacook, a sailor aboard the USS North Carolina that was docked in the Brooklyn Naval Yard. Keacook had lodged at Nassau Street for two weeks whilst he had been on leave and had visited the house three weeks before the murder, suggesting that he had had at least some relationship, or perhaps some ideas of a relationship, with Mary during the time. But aside from the fact that he was loosely familiar with Mary and was a sailor, the police had absolutely nothing else on him. Unsurprisingly, his alibi stood up to scrutiny, and after three days in the tombs, he was released. In the void of any real information, the press reported on just about every rumour that circulated the streets. After Daniel Payne visited the offices of the Times and Evening Star, handing over a handful of affidavits and letters from witnesses, the narrative against him largely backpedalled, and instead began tossing around the theory that Mary had committed suicide after being forced to break up with Payne by her mother. It was a curious conclusion to make, given the bruises found on her face and neck, as well as the lace tied around her neck, but by this point, a month had passed in relative silence from the police, and the facts were not of much importance to the circulating rumours. Outside of reporting every theory they could find, the papers also focused on the lack of any reward being offered for information, and used the case to attack both City Hall and the police. Looking to capitalise on the situation, James Gordon Bennett, the editor of the New York Herald, called a shaky alliance of newspaper editors from across New York to come together and pull a reward. For Bennett, it was a calculated move to attack the officials and his enemies in the press, of which there were many. Any papers that refused to chip into the reward pool, or actively spoke out against it, Bennett shot down as being uncaring for attacking the noble motives of others. In the end, the plan was successful in raising over $500 from the press, as well as pressuring the officials into stumping up the cash to match. When all was said and done, a reward of $1,350 was offered for any information that would lead to an arrest. The best lead came towards the end of August, when the police caught wind of a man named Joseph Morse, who had been known to the police for his previous bouts of domestic violence. Their interest in him as a suspect shot up considerably after witnesses said they had seen a man matching his description, walking arm in arm, with a woman matching Mary's description, in her bokken on the day of her disappearance. He failed to return home that night, and when his wife asked him about it the next day, he responded with further violence, storming out. Even more tantalising was the fact that when the police did decide to pick him up, the assistant in his engraving store, that was just around the corner from the Nassau Street boarding house, told the police that Morse had left town, headed for Boston. Constable Hilliker from the New York Police filed for an arrest warrant and then jumped on a steamship upriver in pursuit, alongside one of the witnesses who claimed to have seen him in Hoboken. Once they arrived, they traced him to a rooming house in the small town of Holden, 50 miles west of Boston. 
Hideka left the witness in a bar and then ambushed Morse alone. Claiming to be a traveller from out of town, he invited Morse for a drink. As they sat in the bar chatting, Hilika watched for a nod from the witness, telling him that Morse was the man that he had seen in Hoboken. As soon as the nod came, Hilika finished his drink and arrested him on the spot. The pair carted Morse back to New York and tossed him in the tombs whilst they contacted the other witnesses to ask them to come and ID him, which they all did, giving a positive identification. For his part, Morse admitted that he and his wife had had the occasional marital spat, but he denied outright that he'd played any part in the murder of Mary Rogers. Strangely, when he was arrested, he told Hilika that he had been walking with a young lady in Hoboken on the day of Mary's disappearance, but after he arrived in New York, he changed his story to place himself in Staten Island. The arrest sparked a rush of excitement in the press and the public. The newspapers went all in on the guilt of Morse, though their stories initially seemed to confuse two completely separate suspects, amalgamating their stories into one. Matters came to a head on the 17th of August when a group formed outside the prison calling for his head. Mob justice was avoided and the crowd dispersed, but the press didn't lay off Morse until he was alleviated from suspicion for the murder after his alibi was confirmed and it was proven that he had been in Staten Island, not Hoboken, on the day of the murder. Seemingly devoid of irony or self-awareness, the Evening Post pointed out the dangers of circumstantial evidence, calling it a dangerous sort of proof on which to destroy men's characters or lives. By the end of August, the rumours surrounding the case were at an all-time high. Stories weaved together, combined, mutated and moved further and further from any sense of factual reporting as each day passed. The police continued to make arrests in secret, but none came of anything and all the suspects were quickly released in every case. Just when the Mary Rogers murder was heading into cold case territory, a rather strange call came from Hoboken that would shake the whole thing to the ground. If the police had been hoping for a lead to fall into their laps on the case, then their wish was granted in the first week of September, when a woman named Miss Frederica Loss called the Hoboken police station to report a collection of ripped and torn clothing that had come into her possession which she believed matched the description of those worn by Mary Rogers on the day of her disappearance. In fact, Mrs Loss was quite sure that they were the exact clothes, as she was the proprietor of a tavern just north of the Elysium Fields, and on the Sunday in question, she remembered serving Mary herself a glass of lemonade when she had come into the bar with a man described as having a swarthy complexion. For a case that was floundering hopelessly, the phone call was an incredible lifeline. Dr Cook went to visit Mrs Loss in her tavern to examine the clothes and to learn the story of where they had come from. It turned out that on the 25th of August, her teenage sons, Ossian and Charles, had been out playing in the local woods when they'd crawled into a dense thicket and stumbled across the clothing, discarded on the ground. They collected it up and brought it home to Mrs Loss in the tavern, who popped them into a drawer while she considered what to do. Most likely, she was holding out for a reward to be announced and it's likely no small coincidence that the reward had been advertised in the press throughout the first week of September. Dr Cook further questioned her on the day of the murder, and Mrs Loss explained that she had served Mary and the mystery man lemonade during the day. After they had left, her sons went outside to help return a neighbour's escaped bull, and while she was waiting for him in the garden, she recalled hearing a scream in the distance, though she thought it may have been one of her sons struggling with the boisterous animal and thought nothing more of it, once they both returned home safe and sound a few minutes later. The police were dispatched to the nearby thicket, where Ossian and Charles said they had found the clothing. They found it difficult to enter, requiring them to crawl along the ground, 
Before they came to an opening that showed signs of a struggle, snapped branches and trampled foliage suggested that there had been quite a violent attack, and they also found prints of a man's high-heeled boot in the mud. It was a veritable feast of evidence after a considerable famine. The only downside was that Mrs Loss had not recognised the man that Mary had been with when they were in her tavern, and her description lacked any particularly distinguishing features. Beginning to suspect gang violence, the police asked the press to restrain from printing any stories about the Hoboken thicket scene whilst they investigated it further, which they respected in part, reporting on the interest around Mrs Loss's tavern and commenting that the police had found some kind of clue, but not given any particular details. With the secrecy and silence, the case did manage to find its way to the back of people's minds for a few weeks, and the mystery of Mary Rogers, as it was now widely known, faded from public view. And then, on Friday, October the 8th, whilst out walking along the shore by the Elysian Fields, Dr Samuel Griswold stumbled across the body of Daniel Payne, reigniting the story instantly. The inquest took place at 11am the following day, where the sorry story of Daniel Payne unfolded. On the 7th of October, he had rolled into Mrs Loss's tavern in Hoboken, ordered a brandy and water and asked for directions to the thicket where they had found Mary's clothes. After finishing his drink, he stumbled out of the bar and apparently, in a drunken stupor, wound up sleeping face down in the long grass, which is where a local farmer, James McShane, found him the following morning. Waking up and brushing himself down, Payne stooped off and found his way to the crime scene, where he downed a vial of laudanum, smashed a glass bottle on a rock and made his way back to the Elysian Fields, settling down on a bench. Dr Griswold found him several hours later, his head hanging off the end, his breathing was laboured and his face was pale. The doctor ran off to look for help, but by the time that he'd returned, Payne had died. During the autopsy, the coroner found a note in his pocket, scribbled in pencil that read, To the world, here I am on the spot. God forgive me for my misfortune in my misspent time. The cryptic note suggested suicide, but the angle of his head on the bench when he was found suggested to the doctor that he had potentially suffocated himself. Nothing untoward was found in his system, but his brother told the inquest that he had been drinking heavily ever since Mary's death. Eventually, the conclusion was vague and they put his death down to irregularity of living. The press feasted on this new death, especially once they learnt of the note found in the pocket, with many of them printing that it was actually a confession of Mary's murder. For a full year, conspiracy theories stacked up in the press. The public and much of the press pointed their fingers at Daniel Payne, believing that he had murdered Mary and killed himself after failing to live with the guilt. In truth, the police themselves had had a similar line of thinking, though the testimony of Mrs Loss at the inquest had seen the tavern landlady insist that though she believed she had seen Daniel Payne somewhere before, it was not with Mary on the day of the murder. Others looked with suspicion upon Mrs Loss, questioning why she had held on to the clothes for so long before contacting the police, and even suggesting that the thicket had all been a big ruse and that she was holding on to more information than she was letting on. Most of the stories were just pure speculation, based on little more than snippets of circumstantial evidence or idle hearsay at best, but in the void of any actual progress or breakthroughs in the case, gossip was all that could be conjured by the majority of the press. And then, after a year of the case falling into obscurity, a freak accident threw another twist into the story, leading the press to finally conclude that the mystery was all but solved.
The Mary Rogers Mystery Explained The terrible mystery, which for more than a year has hung over the fate of Mary Rogers, whose body was found, as our readers will well remember, in the North River, under circumstances such as convinced everyone that she was the victim of a hellish lust and then of murder, is at last explained. To the satisfaction, we doubt, not of all. It may be recollected that associated with the tale of her disappearance was the name of Mrs. Loss, the woman who kept the refreshment house nearest the scene of her death. About a fortnight since, as we have already stated, this woman was accidentally wounded by the premature discharge of a gun in the hands of her son. The wound proved fatal, but before she died, she sent for Justice Merritt of New Jersey and told him the following facts. On the Sunday of Miss Rogers' disappearance, she came to her house from the city in company with a young physician who undertook to procure for her a premature delivery. While in the hands of the physician, she died and a consultation was then held as to the disposal of her body. It was finally taken at night by the son of Mrs. Loss and sunk in the river where it was found. Her clothes were first tied up in a bundle and sunk in a pond on the land of Mr. James G. King in that neighbourhood, but it was afterwards thought that they were not safe there and they were accordingly taken and scattered through the woods as they were found. The name of the physician is unknown to us, nor do we know whether it was divulged or not. The mayor has been made acquainted with these facts by Mr. Merritt, and we doubt not an immediate inquiry after the guilty wretch will be made. The son of Mrs. Loss, as an accessory after the fact, we suppose will be, if he has not already been, arrested. No doubt, we apprehend, can be entertained of the truth of this confession. It explains many things connected with the affair which before were wrapped in mystery especially the apathy of the mother of Miss Rogers upon the discovery of her body. It was a piece wildly out of left field, but if the deathbed confession were true, then as the article mentioned, it did explain many of the strange facts. However, it did not explain everything. The same piece went on to say that despite the medical examinations being thorough and minute in detail, they must have all been simply incorrect. Was it possible that two coroners could have mistaken the cause of death completely? The whole thing did ring with an air of truth, however. In 1841, abortion was outlawed in New York. If the pregnancy was in the stages of quickening, that is, the baby was moving, then the physician carrying out the procedure could be charged with manslaughter. Despite this, the newspapers were filled with adverts from physicians advertising all sorts of powders and solutions that promised to act either as birth control or as an abortifacient played off with a wink and a nudge, women's pills were sold to remove obstructions. If all else failed, there were plenty of physicians, most of which had no medical training whatsoever, who were willing to carry out a backroom abortion for those that were desperate enough. One of the most infamous of these physicians in New York was a lady known as Madame Rostel, who made a fortune carrying out abortions for women of all social classes for decades. The wife of a tailor, Anne Trow, was born in England in 1812 and sailed for New York in 1831. Within months of their arrival in America, her husband died of bilious fever, leaving her to raise their one-year-old child alone. After meeting a printer with a liberal streak, she reinvented herself as Madame Rostel, naming herself after her fictional French medical teacher and mentor, and began supplying preventative powders, essentially just folk medicines, to the women of New York. When the powders failed, Madame Rostel would suggest the next step an abortion catering her fees to the individual's income. Opinions on her were mixed, and the issue was the manner of some heated debates for decades. 
while she boasted of receiving thousands of letters from women across the city, thanking her for her services, conservative editorials rallied against her openly. She has committed several hundred crimes, punishable by the laws of man and condemned by the laws of God. We do not say so, she says it herself. Preventative powders, there is no such thing in nature. There is but one preventative, which is abstinence. The law of nature, instinct, the canons of the church, the laws of the land, all clearly defined the ends and objects of the marriage vow. The promotion of happiness and procreation of children. This unprincipled creature knows better than God or man how married people ought to behave. Despite no evidence beyond the deathbed confession of Mrs. Loss, the conclusion reached in the press of a botched abortion killing Mary eventually became fact. Theories were thrown around surrounding who the physician may or may not have been. Mary Ristel herself was well known to operate in a network of houses and taverns throughout the city, and Mrs. Loss was at once named as both the physician and simply the facilitator, offering her premises for hire to abortionists. Mrs. Loss's children were arrested, but in questioning them, they outright denied everything, chalking all the accusations up to hearsay, and eventually they were released due to lack of evidence. Slowly, with the police failing to make any new headway or turning up any new clues, the case faded away and the story of abortion became the de facto truth and conclusion to the Mary Rogers mystery. When Madame Rastel killed herself following her arrest in 1878 after the toughening up of laws against abortion, the story of the beautiful cigar girl made a brief comeback in the papers, but interest quickly faded and the case remained a mystery cold as the steel-coloured water of the Hudson on a winter's day. So what did happen to Mary Rogers when she disappeared back in the summer of 1841? If one believes the deathbed confession of Mrs Loss, then how do we square away the lace tied around her neck and the bruises to her face and throat that were clearly commented on by both coroners during the two autopsies that were carried out? Were the marks done in order to cover up the abortion, much like the clothes being scattered in the thicket, And is this why both Daniel Payne and Mary's mother didn't seem surprised to hear of her death, knowing that she was going to have a risky medical procedure? If the abortion had been carried out by Madame Rastel, she was certainly powerful enough and well known for having the police in her pocket. Was this the reason so much of the information relating to the investigation was suppressed? Or was she murdered by Daniel Payne in a fit of rage? Similar theories fall onto the shoulders of Cromlin and even Anderson, Mary's old boss in the tobacco store. There were some that suggested Anderson had suppressed a great deal of information, paying off the officials in order to protect his political ambitions. And if he'd not killed her outright, which does seem far-fetched, had he been having an affair with Mary and had it been he who had gotten her pregnant? One tantalising thread to this theory follows all the way back to Mary's first disappearance in 1838, while she'd been working at the tobacco store, with many believing that rather than a trip to see her friends in Brooklyn, like she said, Mary had had her first abortion at that time and took the days off in order to recover. It was certainly true that her mental health suffered around this time and she struggled with her work. In later years, Anderson took to spiritualism in a big way and even said he had contacted Mary for business advice. But at this late stage in his life, he also believed that his children were conspiring to kill him so his faculties may not have been entirely intact. Ultimately, we'll never know the truth, and it seems our best form of closure would be to take Mrs Loss's deathbed confession as fact. 
Edgar Allan Poe tried his hand at concluding the case in his story, The Mystery of Marie Roget, which he based on the Mary Rogers case and published in a three-part series in The Lady's Companion, a monthly pamphlet magazine. But even in this fictionalised version, the story remains open to interpretation. Poe worked closely with officials who had been involved in the case and teasingly suggested in a later letter that he may have known more about the real details of the case than he included in the story, but he never elucidated upon the matter. In the end, the mystery of Mary Rogers remains just that, one of New York's most intriguing 19th century mysteries, perhaps now fallen into obscurity, but never completely forgotten. So that was the mystery of Mary Rogers. Um, we'll discuss a little bit about our theories and such after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So that is for the first time actually in a long while where we've got like a mystery to discuss, which is quite fun, isn't it? Tough story, that one. I really don't know where I fall on my position either. Like, after everything I've read about it, i really, really not too sure. I think that I can fully see the deathbed confession being true. Because why would she have done the confession if it wasn't the truth, unless she was covering up for another crime? Like, something that maybe was worse and she thought well if I'm dying then I can kind of sacrifice myself to cover up like for example let's say like it was a a murder by like her son or something like that or or someone that she knew and then she could kind of do this deathbed confession as a as a kind of sacrifice to cover up for that so she could have been covering up for like a, a another crime but otherwise it doesn't it doesn't seem a great deal of point for her to be lying so on if we like focus on that element of the case i i really think oh yeah that must have been true like it was the deathbed confession like she died of a botched abortion and that makes sense and it, it all makes historical sense you know it ties in with the time period it ties in with you know the, the trends of the day and what was going on in in, in new york um you know it, it really seems to sort of match up and even like small bits of the story, you know, like that she was seen walking with a man on the day of her disappearance. When it turns out that the man, no one that no one seemed to recognise, was that uh, this physician. And all of a sudden, it sort of all sort of makes sense and all sort of ties together quite neatly. But, and it's a big but, if we believe that, then what about 
all of the marks around her throat and the lace that was tied around her throat. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It, it's all um, sort of put into, alluded to rather than said outright, but they basically like said that she was like sexually assaulted before she was murdered, right? And so you can see there that perhaps they'd mistaken like this really obviously badly botched abortion for a, a sexual assault. Um, and so that kind of makes sense in a way. But the bruises around the neck and mouth and, you know, like like the, the fact that her face was like violently beaten doesn't make sense to me. Because the only way they could have done that is if they'd have done that after she died of the botched abortion to sort of, again, like cover their tracks the same way they dumped all her clothes and stuff. So that on that sense, you say, oh, okay, that makes sense. But she wouldn't have had all that bleeding and bruising if they'd have done it after the fact, right? So that doesn't really tally. That it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. That the, the, the deathbed confession is really neat and ties everything up until you look at that point, and then it sort of falls apart, and it falls apart quite badly. And, and and it leads you to sort of then think, okay, then perhaps she was sort of violently murdered. But then by who? I don't think it would have been Daniel Payne. And I think, to be honest, I think his suicide is a little bit of a, a red herring. I think he just, you know, was in a really bad way because his future wife or, the, the you know, the woman that he was sort of planning to marry just got brutally murdered. And And like, you know, his brother said that he'd been drinking really heavily since. You don't have to drink in really heavily because, you know, you've got any sort of guilt for that. You know, he he might have just been drinking really heavily because he was having a really bad time, you know, with the grief and, and struggling to get over it. Um, so I, I don't necessarily, I think that's somewhat of a red herring. Um, I mean, it does play into the abortion story to a certain extent because especially if the baby was his because then you could say that he's suffering from a form of guilt as well you know because he might have been really struggling with the fact that you know he'd got her pregnant and then she'd gone to have an abortion and and, and that abortion had killed her and in a way it's like inadvertently his fault he could or you know he could see it that way especially if he's in a bad way drinking a lot so it, again it does play into that but I don't know I, I still feel like that story just doesn't really make sense with the tying the lace around the neck and and all the bruises and the bleeding it just doesn't it just doesn't make a great deal of sense to me but then you know what what parts of that confession were true and, and what parts weren't true with the clothing for example you know it seems like that was fairly true that, that they were kind of dumped in that thicket like at a latter stage and that she knew they were there but again you've got to ask this question if her deathbed confession was true, why did she phone the police in the first place? Why didn't she just dump the clothes there and let someone else find them, like, months or years later? What? Why bring attention to herself? Why hide the body, hide the clothes? The body gets found, yeah, sure. Why not just leave the clothes? Why then, when you're completely out of the picture, go and get all the clothes... And phone the police and say, I've got these clothes. Unless they were, she was possibly thinking that she could cash in on the reward. But that wouldn't really have been the case because 
the information that she would have given would not really have led to any arrest because she didn't really give any useful information because obviously it was all lies. So it's it doesn't really make a great deal of sense. There are a few holes that, that really sort of critically ruin it. Um, so yeah, I'm really on the fence and I don't know either way with this one. I think it is... It's genuinely a conundrum. Um, it, it, you know, it sort of says that, you know, it's one of the greatest 19th century mysteries. Well, they're always the greatest 19th century mystery. You know, they're always the, 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 the most outrageous crime or the most scandalous, you know, whatever. But, but this one genuinely, I think it really is like a, a complete mystery to me. I, I, I don't know which one to believe. I, I can, thing is, I think the problem I've got with it is I can really believe them both. I can really believe the deathbed confession because it fits almost everything. And I can really believe that it was some sort of much worse crime because of all the medical evidence. So, yeah, it's really tough. It's a really tough one, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, I thought, you know, if you've got your own theories and you'd like to let me know, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email. You can get home in touch with me um through social media all the links are in the show notes or on the website which is darkhistories.com and you'll find pretty much everything on the website including like the books the merch store um ways to support if you'd like to links to the patron um links to the discord server anything you'd like to find either check it out in the show notes or um find it on the website uh, otherwise yeah thanks very much for listening um as i mentioned right at the start say if you've got any ask me anything questions um do get them into me, um, say either through the email contact at darkhistories.com or um, through social media. Um, either's great. Um, and yeah, thanks very much for listening. Oh, I suppose if you're on the Discord as well, you can you can ask on the Discord and um, you can either do that in the channel or just um, DM me on Discord as well. That's fine. Thank you very much for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Cheers. Sleep tight.